This is The Lit Fantastic, a podcast series about authors and their obsessions. I'm your host, Neil Aiken. In this episode, I speak with Lee Herrick, a good friend of mine who happens to be the former poet laureate for Fresno City, California, and the author of two books of poetry, Guardian Secrets of the Dead and This Many Miles from Desire. We talk about his obsession with institutions. One of the things I like about this particular episode is how a discussion about institutions and Lee's interest and obsession with them becomes a larger discussion about our humanity and the way that some of these institutions can dehumanize us while at the same time we can have opportunities to restore humanity and rebuild community um, through the positions we have within an institution. So let's drop into the conversation at the point when Lee is sharing with me his experience as a poet laureate. One of the things that he did during his tenure as a poet laureate was to um, give poetry readings and workshops at correctional institutions. At this particular point in the conversation, he's explained his first visit uh, to a level two correctional facility and the impact it ended up having on him in reconsidering the role of institutions and their place in humanizing and dehumanizing our experience. One of the current things I'm thinking about obsession-wise, I don't know if it's an obsession or not, but I am thinking about it a lot with poetry and public space is the idea of institutions. And it was really sparked recently, about a month ago, I did a reading and a talk at a California state prison, which is a level two facility here. It was extremely eye-opening. You know, for me, it was a way to make what I have always believed in, which is redemption or human rights or questions about um, the institutionalized racism that might produce different numbers in institutions like that. It was a way to make all of that very real, you know. I think you can read 20 books of theory on any given subject, but spending one hour in it is perhaps more valuable or at least as valuable. So it was a um, a real eye-opener, and really it was one of the best reading experiences of my life. The Q&A was one of the best Q&As I've ever been part of. With institutions, I'm thinking about now most recently because of that visit, but also, you know, having taught in higher education, the institution of academia, the institution of higher education in America for 25 years and seeing how those policies and practices and um, open doors and closed doors and at different levels affect people in, in our communities. And then going all the way back to my birth, um, you know, I was born in Daejeon, South Korea, and I don't know exactly how long, but I spent probably the first roughly, you know, 10 months of my life in some form of institution, be it a social welfare center or an orphanage. So it's just recently sort of started to be in the forefront of my thinking and my mind. Um, it's an extension, I think, from my third manuscript I just finished, which has to do with other kinds of sound and other kinds of walls and how we think and how we move and how we experience the world. You, you spoke about speaking and and giving this reading and this Q and A at the at this um, you know correctional institution and um, 
I was wondering what were some of the questions that you received? You talk about it as being probably the most memorable and striking and and sort of an incredible experience. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on some of the questions and some of the responses that you heard while you were there. Sure. The Q&A was, I think it was so good, partly because of the range of experiences that they had come with, but also just the context of it being in a prison, you know, I'm very interested in ideas of liberation and experience and confinement and how all those things sort of merge together. So, you know, they, they just were very real. I think there's, there's very little time or interest, I might guess, for pretense. And I value that. I appreciate that. Uh, I'm not ever all that fascinated with or impressed by airs or... Uh, those, those kinds of things. So I think that's one thing that made it particularly refreshing is just how straightforward and direct and honest the questions were. Um, for example, they asked me questions about uh, personal fears. They asked me um, questions really about their own writing, which you know included a few of the guys who had started a writing group in the prison uh one person had a bachelor's degree in psychology one person had published a book one of the men um or uh, quite a few of the men were in their maybe i would guess in their early 20s and many of them were probably in their mid 70s so it made for a great environment for a, a q and a and i think partly too is as much as i love academia, you know, I teach in an MFA program. I love the MFA program that I teach in. Of course, I value education and would encourage it highly. For me, poetry has never been only about that. I've always been interested in people and cultures and writers and experiences that are very outside of any mainstream. And so that Q&A was that sort of thing. It was, at least for me, it was something that I had never experienced. And I think that's one of the things about obsessions in general. It can just become this wide open field that you can continually move into. It's sort of, you know, continual, these long hallways of open doors and fields and, you know, space to keep exploring. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a great, it was a great experience. I haven't really thought about it a lot out loud like this, so I appreciate, I hope I'm not, you know, rambling too much. Maybe, maybe I should have said my obsession is rambling, <laughs> but um, I appreciate the, the chance. This is one of the interesting things about obsession, isn't it? Is that we start off and often we assume that a, a, an obsession becomes a narrowing of focus on something, an obsession with mm-hmm. detail. But paradoxically, it also opens up, it widens a field. Then suddenly everywhere we go, we see aspects that relate to the thing that we are, you know, fascinated with, the thing that that is dwelling, that we dwell on in our heads, in our minds, becomes Mm -hmm. ever-present. It's it's all over the place. And um, it spills over into the other aspects of of the things that we're doing. You know, with institutions and whatnot. Another obsession, and that my wife knows this, and, and a couple of my good friends know, I have another real obsession, uh, and that is 1960s political history and presidential history, and specifically John F. Kennedy. 
And that kind of relates to the idea of institutions as well. Um, so, so what's really particularly uh, fascinating? What's particularly fascinating about that particular period? Oh, I just love it. I mean, I'm trying to contain myself here because I know this is going to be for a program, so I don't want to go on. Too uh, but long. That, the, it's it's the <laughs> yeah. whole point of the program. <laughs> okay, well, let me tell you. Uh, I guess it really began in college when. In graduate school, I did my master's thesis on John F. Kennedy's crisis rhetoric, and I paired it with Aristotle's landmark work about 2,400 years ago, The Art of Rhetoric. But I looked at John F. Kennedy's crisis speeches, specifically the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis. And then through that, afterwards, I got really interested in his assassination. And one winter, I was in my probably in my early to mid-20s, which was about uh, about 20 years ago, I bought these VHS tapes of other video footage of his assassination. Uh, many people think that the, the Pruder film is the only video footage of John F. Kennedy's assassination, but in fact, there are quite a few others. So I ordered this videotape, and I was watching these grainy documentary, you know, 30-second things of, of the assassination. You could barely make out anything on the video. It's all, since then, it's become a real interest. I've read probably dozens of books on it. I have a first edition hard copy of the Warren Commission report, which I found at some used bookstores, perfect condition. I was going to say they could have had it filed under fiction, jokingly, but um, you ask why or what is it about it that interests me. The political element, the element of truth and the space and the open sort of questions and the intrigue and all, and all of that. I've always been interested in how governments tell us things or sell us things. And so for me, that part of American history is a, is a sort of a quintessential example of, of all of those things. So, yeah, I, you know, it comes and goes. I don't spend much time on a day-to-day or even month-to-month basis thinking about it. But over the last number of years, it's definitely been a fun obsession. I, I guess, you know, maybe part of the attraction is it is this historical event that's well-documented. You know, it was actually televised, you know, as it happened. And yet it is still so full of mystery and uncertainty about what actually yeah. happened. We, there's a part of us that wants to believe that the things we encounter in our life are solid, clearly discernible. You know, we can clearly identify and demark, you know, what this event or this instant or this, this emotion or this thing is. When, in fact, the more we look at it, the less certain we are we understand anything. Yeah. You know, Plato said true wisdom is knowing that you do not know. And for me, it's, it's a good reminder because if I had to think about what is it in me or my life that makes something like that question of his assassination so interesting, I mean, as a Korean adoptee, I don't have a lot of facts of my birth. I don't know exactly when I was born. My Korean name is Lee Kwang Soo, but I don't know that that was given to me by either one of my birth or first parents. That could have been just listed by the cop who found me and, you know, started the paperwork. So I think questions of the unknown, I think, are interesting to me now that I think about it. And um, honestly, and I have no idea 
But I think all artists have this in some form, you know, that pursuit of some question or the fueling of some fire that can sustain the artist over a career, um, not in a career sense, but because they're fueling the art or the fire or the question. Um, I don't know if you're into any of that. I know some of your obsessions. Part of me wants to interview you here, though. <laughs> oh, Phil, ask away, ask away. I don't know. Do you think of anything related to what I'm talking about, or any other obsessions that that you're? Well, I, I do. I do have like this kind. Of, I have so many obsessions. It it, it it kind of everything spills over. But I mean, I'm le- not necessarily interested in JFK assassination, but I am fascinated with. Um, with sort of uh, like mysterious places, you know, archaeological sites of antiquity and sophistication that that we can't quite completely explain or or how different things work. I, I don't subscribe to ancient aliens as being the answer to everything or even anything, but I, I love sort of reading about these these places that we just simply don't understand because it doesn't fit our current model for history. Mm-hmm. And and that yeah. sort of unease about well what is there? You know, what is it that we're missing, you know, mm-hmm. is is really kind of compelling to me because I think that, you know, that suggests that that whatever we've arrived at as a consensus may not always be an accurate depiction of the the world that we live in and the history that brought us here. I kind of feel like that maybe is the underlying obsession that runs through all the things we've been talking about. Is this really deep fascination, interest in what is the truth? Mm-hmm. Given the fact that you know, when when we're in the context of you know a prison or a correctional institution, there is always the question of like, well, what really did happen? How did these people really mm-hmm. get here? What was the real story? Then there's also you know the question of you know what is the truth about like we we look at sort of the the different horrible things that have been happening over the last. Well, I, I can't say the last few weeks. It's just been ongoing in the in the United yeah. States. And again, despite documentation, despite you know video footage or audio recordings, we're still left with this great unease about what is the actual truth in a situation, yeah. or you know what it is that we're what the story is that we're trying to tell, whether through prose or through poetry. Enjoy what you're hearing? Obsessed with what you're hearing? Subscribe to The Lit Fantastic on iTunes. While you're there, leave us a review. Tell us what you think. And now, back to our interview. I guess a third obsession is institutions is one, and JFK's assassination is another one. A pretty long-standing one has been the idea of racism and social justice or racism in America as it applies to criminal justice, which might be an oxymoron. I don't, I don't know. But uh, somebody said to me recently that it feels very urgent now, and, and I would agree. But one could argue that it has been an, uh, 
an urgency of 400 years in America. Yeah. With peri- with periods of malaise or amnesia in between. You, you know, but my entry point into it when I was in college at about age 22 was watching Rodney King get beaten by the four police officers in California. Um I don't even think people had mobile phones back then in large numbers, but somebody videotaped this beating and, you know, it was on one of those big cameras you had to have probably on your shoulder. And it was the, really one of the first times that it had been captured on video, what people had been saying for decades. And that was the real eye opener for me that was caught on video. And those four cops were acquitted of excessive force, but they beat Rodney King for about 90 seconds a minute and a half. So uh, I've never felt and still do not feel that cameras, while they should and while they often ought to, that's one small part in a sea of a judicial process. Mm-hmm. You know, And I think systemically it's so flawed throughout that to think one part of it will prove anything is short-sighted. In other words, just looking at the numbers of who's doing the policing and who are they policing, where and why. But, you know, before the stop is even made, you know, what are the tacit things of a policing department, which is a government branch, you know, and even I think about the public's perceptions of these people in different communities that are at the ready to acquit or sentenced to guilt before, before any video is even shown. I think the video often doesn't mean anything to anybody. And in a court of law, you know, and then you look at a jury system, you know, you look at the, the makeup of juries or legal representation, or you look at the economic uh, situation where a person can or maybe cannot afford a halfway decent attorney. Um, then you look at the judges, the appellate courts. I mean, so to say things are a little out of whack, I think is a great understatement. So yeah, it's, it's very disturbing. I hope and pray and will continue to work in my classes and in the areas that I can to work against these sorts of deaths, but, um, unbelievably disturbing, you know, it's, it's not new to say that this is not new, but, um, I'm cautiously optimistic at the same time. I am realistic and not so optimistic as far as America's ability to get it together. But yeah, the social justice stuff and also with Asian American communities, you know, when I was in late college, uh, I became familiar with the Wenho Lee case and I got involved with that. Uh, He was the Taiwanese physicist who was held in solitary confinement for over 300 days, never having been charged with the crime. And I met Cecilia Chang, who was a family friend who was sort of became the head of his National Legal Defense Fund. And that was sort of around the fear-driven hysteria that Asian Americans, specifically Chinese or Taiwanese Americans, were somehow connected, or Koreans, honestly, somehow connected to nuclear war always and at the ready and should be feared. So the Wenho Lee case was very formative for me as well. And of course, cases like Vincent Shin and more recent cases. So there's, there's all kinds of things that I, I guess I obsess about or I, a better way for me to think of it is that concern me, that, that worry me, that um, I'm hopeful for. With, with so many um, 
I mean, there there has been so much, and there continues to be things that we we are concerned with, and we want to do more to change and to affect a change in the communities that we live in and the society that we live in. Um, a lot of the the institutions we've talked about, you know, some of them contribute to the problem. Are there mm-hmm. are there institutions or organizations? Um, or community movements that you feel are, are providing hope? love the idea that, and I believe in the idea that the arts are the thing. I mean, they're called the humanities for a reason, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, there's, there's hope. I, I think, though, you know, the other thing I think of, though, is that given how, or given where we are in history and, and the, you know, the, the institutions aren't going away, Mm-hmm. I think I'm thinking there's got to be some middle ground between, you know, all out oligarchy and machinery driven, no human contact. And then the other extreme of everybody holding hands and getting along and which might be, you know, I don't think that's going to fully happen anywhere either. But some middle ground where some of these humane ideas can enter the institutions, for example, gun violence. I mean, just some, you know some sensible things to where um, it's not so much about power or policy, but more about just some agreed upon semblance of decent uh, definition of decency, you know, and then this gets back, you know, you're talking about meeting people and talking and writing, you know, I'm, we were talking earlier, I'm going to go down and, and I'm doing that hour and a half of just a community hour as poet laureate where, Hopefully I'll meet some people and they can tell me about what they're thinking about poetry or the community. You know, yesterday I had about a two and a half hour coffee with a high school teacher here in Fresno. And we got to talking about some community things that we can do here in Fresno around writing, creative writing and uh, literacy and social justice. So there's a lot of, there are a lot of things we can do. Um, I joke with my students, or I've joked with my students before, and I say, I'm not, I'm not going down without a fight. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning, I'm not, I'm not going down not caring. I'm not going down being scared of, of other people because of the color of their skin. I'm, but th- those are the things I think that some of those institutions would have us believe. Yeah. 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 I mean, it is true. Yeah. It's very hard to change sort of a, a culture that's grown up within an institution. Yeah. And especially when the institutions sometimes and often uh, dehumanize the, the people that they're serving, um, oh, treat them yeah. as commodities or treat them as clients and customers. And, and we forget. We forget the, the life of the individual and the struggles of the individual and the needs of the individuals that we're trying Absolutely. to serve. Absolutely. I mean, I think of the dehumanizing element of the prison system or the dehumanizing element of, say, robotic, mechanical, certain kinds of work, or even a government structure's, uh, government's idea of work, or uh, certainly something like media or the television that, you know, of course, creates this vast human experience into this tiny little example that we're all supposed to think is representative of the whole. So, yeah, and thank goodness there are books and shows with people like you, you know, or 
museums or parks or lakes. Those are legislated to some extent. I mean, optimistically, you could say that the government tries to preserve some of those spaces, but those are still out there, you know? So my interest with institutions is as much an interest in open space and liberation, really. It's the same idea for me. Mm-hmm. Is, is always fighting against the things that will close me off in my thinking or in my idea of movement or not just my own, but in how I see others. I think that's part of what has been going on a lot is how people see others in a very restricted, limited, mm-hmm. negative way, which, you know, some people have said is a form of violence. You know, I remember Gloria Anzaldúa in Borderlands asked, what is more violent than robbing a people of its language? Mm. So, you know, if we expand our ideas of violence, it can be, for me at least, it's been a liberating thing. Well, this has been absolutely oh, fascinating, <laughs> and I've really enjoyed oh. this conversation, but I'm watching the clock and thinking we've got oh, to wind down. thank you, Neil. I, I've really enjoyed this. Uh, before you go, do you have one or two poems you'd like to share with us? Well, I, how about I read a short one? Okay. Um, this is a poem from my third manuscript that I've just finished, and it's a short poem, I think, I don't think I need to explain too much of it, except to say that it's a short poem after the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary in Newton, Newtown. And I was at my daughter's school. I have, a, at that time, my daughter was in first grade, the same age as the 20 kids who were um, tragically, um, their lives ended that day. So the poem is called, What I Hear After the Massacre and what I mistake for my heart. Invisible birds shot out of the trees and you mistake them for children on the playground or you mistake the leaves cracked underfoot for the children's hush or broken glass. It's a maelstrom. At the winter program, The second graders sing, let it snow. And the parents clasp their hands, half exhale, half prayer. The children sing in your town, and you think of the children in the shattered town. All that comes to you is their hearts, heaven and hell, and the next kind word you will say to a boy. Thank you. That's haunting. My pleasure. You know, thank you for having me, and, uh, and good luck with all the good work you're doing. I appreciate it. That was Fresno Poet Laureate Emeritus Lee Herrick the author of Gardening Secrets of the Dead and This Many Miles from Desire. For more information, you can check out his website at leeherrick.com. You've been listening to The Lit Fantastic, a production of KBOO Community Radio in Portland, Oregon. Special thanks to freemusicarchive.org and to our producer and resident genius, Jenna Yokoyama. To find out more, check out our website at www.thelitfantastic.com. 
Until next episode, I'm your host, Neil Aiken. Thanks for listening. <laughs>